you'll advance to the first slide. So this uh, is a beautiful part of my uh, growing up. So when I was in high school, I lived on the big island of Hawaii. And about 25 minutes from my house is uh, the most special place in the world to me as far as just uh, natural beauty goes. This is called YPO Valley. And what's amazing about YPO Valley is that uh, basically on three sides, it's just those sheer cliffs. There's one little uh, gravel road down, one way down, and you have to take the same way up. You have to have four-wheel drive or you'll never make it, or um, you have to walk for about an hour and a half to get down there. But when you get down there, uh, this pristine black sand beach, uh, there's really no, it's, it's just almost completely untouched by the world. It's amazing. Now, the thing that's, uh, the reason I draw your attention to this is because uh, I thought about this as I was looking at Job chapter 40, because when you go to YPO Valley, there's only one way to get out. You have to return and go back the way you came. There's no other way. You must retrace your steps in in order to retreat. And so, the next slide. So, in our own lives, when we will eventually reach the end of the road where we can go no further. So, when we do that, we're going to come to the end of ourselves. There's no other road but the road of repentance. The word repentance means to turn and go the opposite direction. And so just like going to YPO Valley, in life, when you get to the end of the road, when you finally get to the end of yourself and you come in contact with God and what God's trying to tell you, repentance is the only solution. You can't press any further. There's no God doesn't give you to the left or to the right. You have to repent. You have to turn and go the opposite direction. And by doing that, I see a lot of people get confused about repentance. You know, and repentance is not feeling remorseful. Repentance is not, you know, feeling sorry, wishing I wouldn't have done something. Repentance is changing, changing. It's a, it's a change. So if we want to get out of the place we're in, we got to turn around and go the opposite direction. Now. Across the, you know, Job is like this, uh, you know, in the beginning of Job, there's these exciting few opening chapters where the drama starts to play out. And then there's this long span of just, you know, 20 or so plus chapters of, you know, this sort of dialogue that's going on. It's Job and it's his friends and his wife and he's you know, all these people that are being critical of him and all the things that are befalling him and so on and so forth. But throughout this entire book, what Job's been doing is he's been crying out to God for relief, for understanding. Remember, Job is the most righteous man uh, on the planet at the time. Job's suffering is not because of his sin, but in his suffering, Job has wandered off the trail. He's said things and accused God of things. So he's committed transgressions in his suffering, but they're not a, the transgressions aren't a result of his, or his suffering is not a result of his transgressions. 
And remember back in Job 23, he, he pleaded to have the opportunity to be able to respond to God face to face, to be able to, to make his case to God, to be able to say, you know, if I could stand before God and I could make my, my case, I could fill my mouth with arguments, he said, well, now God's going to answer. Now he's going to get his opportunity. And ultimately, you see on your handout there, Job 42, this is ultimately how he's going to respond at the end of tonight. He's going he's gonna to say to God, after God responds, he's going to say, well, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. Remember when the prophet Isaiah came face to face with God and he sees God high and lifted up and his response to the, the glory and majesty of God is that he's a man of unclean lips and he dwells among a people of unclean lips. Well, Job's response to seeing God, to really seeing God, not just sort of hearing about God, but really seeing God for who He is, is he despises himself. Now, the context of Job 42, 5, and 6, which is an amazing picture of repentance, is this. Next slide. Nothing's really changed in Job's situation. So Job is still bankrupt. See, his, his fortune hasn't changed. He's still alone and without his family, still covered with boils, and still surrounded by critics. Now this is very important. I, I want us to get a good picture of repentance before we go through what happened to lead him there. Because I, I want you to understand that in many ways his situation authenticates his repentance. Wouldn't it have been easy for Job to have professed repentance if everything that was wrong would have been made right? But that's not the case. And so it's very important that you understand that Job is still in the mess that he's been in, yet his heart and his understanding of God has been totally transformed. So Job's about to learn that he's been wrong about God, about his life, next slide, and about himself. When he, when he encounters God, and God says to him what he's going to say to him tonight, it's... It's a total sort of restructuring of his understanding. It's not just him understanding God, but through that he gets clarity about his life, he gets clarity about himself, he gets clarity about purpose, he gets clarity about everything. And you know, one of the hardest places to find yourself in is the realization that you are wrong, especially about something that you were very convinced that you were right about. And you know... That sort of happens to us as we get older, right? As many of you have come in tonight and you've said, oh, congratulations, because, you know, now I'm going to be a grandfather. It's kind of not sure about all this, you know what I mean? The word grandfather, just not sure about all that. I'm really excited about the baby. It's the grandfather part I'm 
not sure how I feel. So, but as we get older, so, so I've, I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about how over time, as you get older, as you experience things in life, your beliefs, our beliefs adjust and change and our theology shifts and we get, we get some, we realize we had some things wrong when we were young. And, you know, one thing that's, that's true about every pastor is that we can go back and we can listen to sermons we preached in the very beginning and then we kind of cringe. Like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Because, you know, we were... And, and here's the thing. I've become much less dogmatic about certain things and much more dogmatic about other things. But you shift. You Can you think of some things that you felt really confident about when you were younger, but now as you're older you believe differently? Like it's not a rhetorical question. Can you really think about that? Let me give you a great example. Look, here, here's some good advice to some of you young couples in here. Never listen to anything, anything, that anyone has to say about parenting who has not raised children. Amen. Just ignore whatever they say. Ignore it. Because they don't know anything. Don't listen to them. What you want to do is you want to talk to somebody who's been there, who's already been on that, rode that bull, already been through that rodeo. That's who you want to talk to. And, and those of us, you know, there's a bunch of us around here that are Doing it again. Let me tell you something. We don't do it the same way the second time that we did it the first time. So all you first-timers in the room that think you got it figured out, go on ahead with your smart self. Trust me. You change. You see, and, and let me tell you what really changes your beliefs as you get older. Pain. Pain. When you, the, when you, the more you suffer... Boy, suffer, suffering is, a, is an immense teacher. And the longer you live, the more things you experience, the more hardships you go through, and the better equipped you are to walk with other people. And so, you know, I've seen that play out in my life time and time again. And so this is sort of, you know, we see Job. Job, remember who he was when we started. And remember who he's been. I mean, Job is a pillar of excellence when it comes to Christianity. I mean, he loves God with all his heart. This guy is majorly devoted. He's, I mean, when we first meet Job, what is he doing? He's interceding on behalf of all of his children. I mean, this guy really, really walks with God. And the suffering that he goes through turns his theology completely upside down turns his identity completely upside down, turns his understanding of purpose in the world around him completely upside down. So we're not talking about some novice, newbie, you know, Christian or something like that. We're talking about somebody who really was walking with God. And so I want to encourage you that you're, uh, you know, the, the, if, you're, if you're growing in, in wisdom and understanding, and you're growing in a relationship with God, your beliefs are going to be evolving and, and sort of 
you know, changing as your understanding of who God is. That's good. That's good. So, let's talk about the road to clarity. The road to clarity. So, chapters 38 to 40, uh, really, God's going to take Job on this extended tour of the universe. So, Pastor Matt sort of, you know, dipped us into this pool last week when he was talking about how the first thing God does is He explains to Job how everything exists within the limits, the limitations to which God puts them in. And primarily what we talked about was evil and how God keeps evil and injustice. He allows them to operate only in the arena in which He deems that they can operate. They don't have any power or authority, any control. Now, what's interesting, when you read 38 and 40, and as you move into 41, what's interesting is that Job has been laying out all of these questions. God, I don't understand this. God, what about this? God, why this? Question after question after question. God doesn't answer any of Job's questions. Not one of them. Not one. Which is very important for us to understand because there's some... There's an opportunity for you to gain some wisdom and some insight into the character and nature of God because God doesn't give Job an explanation of why he's done the things that he's done. He doesn't do that. Job's clarity doesn't come through explanation. It comes through enlightenment. And this is important because this is how it works for me and you. What we want is we want God to give us explanation. But how many times have you heard me say over and over and over that God doesn't do that? He doesn't do that. God's job is not to give us explanation. And what we want is not what we need. Because if it was what we need, God would give it to us. But you see, understanding as to why something's going on it's not, that's not what we need. That's just what we want. What we need is we don't need, we don't need the information about why. What we need is enlightenment into what is God doing. What's his, what's the, what's, what does God want to do in me? What's, the, what's God trying to teach me about himself? So here's what God does. He invites Job to ascend to his throne and deal with issues that he deals with. Here's Job. I mean, imagine, I don't know where you were at the place in your life, maybe it's tonight, but somewhere along your journey, there was a, there was a, a place where you had more questions than you've ever had before. It, maybe it was like Job. It was in your lowest moment. It was in your time of greatest suffering. It was whatever the case may be. But think of a time in your life when you had a maximum number of questions. You were questioning God's goodness, His character. Usually those times are associated with times of, of suffering. Maybe it was a, a miscarriage or maybe it was some tragic event or the loss of a parent or some, you know, some situation that you went through, some illness, some whatever. And during that time, you know, you found your, your heart really really. Your faith was getting tested. It was getting challenged. And, and maybe 
it's, it's interesting to me how we respond differently in those times. Some people in this room, some of us in those times, we maybe you grew up in a, in a, a home where you always went to church and your, Christ, your parents were strong believers. And so maybe your response to feeling those feelings was a, was a feeling of guilt. You felt guilty for questioning God. You felt guilty for the, the feelings that you felt. Maybe some of you are like me and you didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so as an adult, you came to faith in Christ. And so in those moments, you, you're kind of trying to figure out, well, what's going on? And you can remember, it wasn't you know, that long ago, you can remember being an adult who doubted God and questioned God and so on and so forth. It'll, it'll eventually come back. <laughs> Let's read Job 40. Now, now notice what God does. How God, rather than answering all these questions, look, look at how God's going to invite Job in. Verse 7, dress for action like a man. Boy, I mean, I love this. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? I mean... The, the only thing I wish, I just want to see Job's face right here. That's all I want to see. I imagine my face and the look of, uh-oh, you know, like I was feeling so confident. And I realized I, I've stepped over the line. I, I went too far. And now I'm about to start, you know, eating it. Verse 10, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and sp splendor. Now remember, he's, he's sitting there on a, an ash heap covered with boils. You know, looks like a, a half-dead person. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together, bind their faces in the world below. Then I, then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you? So here's what Job learns. He learns that in accusing the maker of heaven and earth of injustice, he was challenging a source of wisdom and power that was infinitely superior to his own. God invites Job into sort of like a moment of, of God's existence. Just, just come into a little sliver of, of what a millisecond of being God is like. You know, it's one thing to cry out to God in, in a, a moment of suffering and God uh, responds to his people when they cry out. He, he rewards us when we sincerely cry out for his help. He hears us. But it's entirely another thing. It's, it's in another category when we accuse God of injustice. And that's where Job is. And you can tell by what God's already said to Job that what's, what's primarily at hand in God's mind is this issue of injustice. That's sort of what's, you know, that's what God wants to deal with. Now here's a principle. 
When our experience seems to contradict what we believe about God, most often, I really wanted to put always, but I had to put most often, experience wins. Unfortunately. You see, when, and this is, this is where the, you know, this is where the, the, the doubts and the, the you know, the, the testing of our faith, the, the sifting come into our life. You know, it's not, we're secure in the things that we, we feel like we know about God and we believe about God, the convictions that we hold, until our experiences start telling us another story. Our experiences are leading us in a different direction. That's when everything starts coming into to, you know, getting blurry and getting all mushed together and we and and I think it's just human nature. I think it's our the flesh. The flesh is very wound up in itself. It's in it's wound up in experience. And so what we do is we have a hard time getting over the hurdle of experience with our beliefs. And I, I want to warn you or, or encourage you, whichever one you need tonight, that you really have to guard your heart against letting experience trump belief because it's a problem and it's going to lead you astray. And what the enemy wants you to do in every situation of hardship is to follow your heart. That's what the enemy wants you to do. And your heart is always wound up in experience. Always. Now, the reason I say that it's human nature is because not only is it what I observe and experience in my own life, but it's also what I see in the Bible. Let me give you a great case study of this, this principle Probably one of the most glaringly just shocking moments in the New Testament. In Mark chapter 4, you know the famous story of Jesus and the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee and they get tangled up in a storm. And where is Jesus? He's asleep in the boat. And who are these disciples that are in this boat? They're seasoned fishermen, right? They're not novices who can't swim, first time they've ever seen water, you know, sitting there in their dorky orange life vest. That's not the case. These are seamen, right? These are fishermen. This is their element. The storm comes up. And what they do is so... Shocking slash telling because it's what we do. And I don't know if there's ever been any more unjust words uttered than these. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I just want you to look at that for a minute. Now, wouldn't it have been perfectly understandable and acceptable for them to say, 
Jesus, wake up, help us, there's a storm. Yeah. Wouldn't it have been totally understandable for them to, you know, yell out all sorts of things, you know, like, but why do they call his character into question? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever thought about that? They didn't say, wake up, we need your help. They accused him of not caring. Think of who's asleep in the boat. You don't care? You've done this. And I've done this. Exact thing. And you know why? Because we we let experience trump belief. We lost sight of what we knew to be true. See, in a moment like this, all these things that you would nod your head with and say, Amen, I believe those things. Because you're not in a boat, in a storm, with waves coming over the sides. And when you are, what are you going to do? What, what in that moment becomes true about God? I mean, it's human nature. We've all been there. So then, here's what He does. God goes to two pictures of power. Which is, on the surface, it seems strange. You know, I, was, uh, I wasn't sure how this was going to lay out. Next slide. When, when, as we've been moving through this section of Job, I was thinking, well, no, we must have missed one. But anyway, it's two pictures of power, if the blank's there. I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, it would be great if Matt would just run on through and deal with these two animals because I really don't know what I'm going to do with them. And then he didn't. You know, he just deflected them onto me. Look at him smiling. He's like, I didn't want to touch that part. And so I'm thinking, man, what am I going to do here? And now... You know, I'm so grateful that, but it literally took me a week and a half to get some clarity here. But it's been good. It's been good. So look at what happens in verse 15. God shifts gears and he goes, Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. Now, behemoth is a, in the Hebrew, that's a, a plural form of a word for beast. So what God's doing, there's a lot of confusion about this. Maybe some of you even have a study Bible that in your notes is going to say, you know, they're going to try to attach this word behemoth to a, uh, a hippopotamus or a rhinoceros. But I don't really think that that's wise because believe me, I've looked at this for a week and a half and uh, this isn't a hippopotamus. And it's not a rhinoceros. This is a whole nother level of uh, ferociousness. So he says, He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins. He, he has power, his muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. Well, you ever seen the tail of a hippopotamus? 
I mean, here's this big, ferocious animal, which they are scary. And trust me, they have no, they're an apex predator. Like that big fat thing can kill anything. <laughs> nothing messes with hippopotamus, nothing. They, they'll kill a, a giant crocodile. And they attack people. Like they're super dangerous. But they got the little dorkiest tail you've ever seen in the world. It is nothing like a cedar. Anyway, uh, the sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are bars of iron. Then he goes on and talks about, you know, he's the first work of God. You know, I'm just reading the rest of the chapter. He talks about the mountains yield food for him. So he has this unbelievable appetite. And he, you know, he basically, whatever other animals there are in the animal kingdom, they have two choices. They either avoid him or they become lunch. That's basically how it works with the behemoth. Um, the, he talks about how when he's in the water and the rivers become turbulent, he doesn't even care. There's no, there's no level of flooding or turbulence that can rattle it. And, and we have, you know, there are animals like that now. In other words, when you think about the animal kingdom, think about uh, how one, one way to sort of understand that there's another category of animals is you have animals, most animals are built on uh, being quiet because that's how they survive. So, you know, for example, you know, a lot of, a lot of guys want to go and deer hunt, and you, you have to be very quiet because deer are very quiet, and they're moving through the forest, and they're hardly making any sound. That's how they survive. A noisy deer is a dead deer, right? On the other hand, you have a lion that is known for its roar. Lions roar at night which is when they hunt. Now, think about that. If you are an animal that lets everyone know that you're here and then you go out to get dinner, you're a pretty bad dude. Like you, the lion's not trying to hide where he is. The lion's telling everybody, here's where I am, this is my area. If you're in this area and I'm hungry, I will eat you. Because lions are not afraid of anything. And so therefore they... The behemoth would eat a lion for lunch. If the behemoth is a real animal, well, it's a pre-flood animal and... We know that there was a lot of things pre-flood that we don't have. Then go to verse 41. Now we're going to shift gears to the other picture of power. Then God starts talking about the Leviathan. He says, well, can you catch it on a fish hook or press down its tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in its nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you with soft words? In other words, like, you know... I." My wife, when she, when, whenever an animal comes around, like our animals at home, 
or your animals or any animal. She talks to the animal in this very strange animal voice. As if all animals understand this when she starts going, hey, you know, I mean, it doesn't even matter what it is. It could be at the zoo. It could be a stray, it could be anything. She'll start talking. It could be a squirrel. It could be anything. And she goes into this little baby voice and she starts talking to the animal. And I mean, you know, it could clearly be a, a male pit bull and she's still talking to it like it's a little girl. Poodle. Which is offensive to a male pit bull. I'm just saying. And God is saying to Job, you know, are you, you going to talk to the Leviathan with your little baby voice? Are you going to, you know, say, come here, little Leviathan, you know? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Are you going to tame him and make him serve you like maybe like you do a horse that you can bridle and use for work? Or will you play with him as you do a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? I mean, God's just being... It sounds kind of smart-alecky, doesn't he? He's just being straightforward. He's just saying, hey, bro, you, you had a, I listened to everything you had to say. I listened to all your charges. All your accusations. I've been 100% engaged and aware of everything that's going on in your life. And now I've got some things I want to tell you. And I'm going to point you to the, these two pictures of awesomeness and power. And the whole thing begins with God saying, You know what I made? I made those. Those things that, that you fear, that you are... I mean, you keep reading, you know, I mean, there's a lot of commentaries that will try to tell you that the Leviathan is a crocodile. It's not a crocodile. I mean, just if you read chapter 41, I mean, it, it's breathing fire. It's smashing trees with its tail. It's, I mean, this thing is way past a crocodile. And Job is sort of just, you know, I think when he walked up, he was kind of, his chest was puffed out, and he felt pretty, you know, like, I'm about to have my say here, because this, I got a raw deal, and I'm going to have a conversation with God about how this has gone down. And about this time, I think Job's kind of curled up in the fetal position, thinking, you know, and here's the point. These creatures are bloodthirsty, brutal killers that are completely submissive to their maker. Completely submissive. And God is just laying out that it's not just evil that is submissive to Him, but it's all of creation. It's everything is submissive to Him. And that, that just if you, if you just get invited into this this little sliver, this tiny, this is in no way inviting Job into, it's not like Job, you know, like God saying, you know, this has come to work with God day. No, no. That's not, no. This is just a tiny little sliver. So like if God was your dad and it was come to work with your dad day, Job gets to, you know, they, 
they drive up in front of where God works and he goes, okay, that's the building and the area in there where I work. That's all Job's getting. That's all he needs. That's all he can handle. That's all we're getting. And so what God's doing is he's, he's laying out this reality that all of creation and these two uh, just incredible beasts they can't operate outside of the specific parameters that God places them in. That you see, to God, God could put them on a leash. God could talk to them with software. You, you think God... What, imagine, what do you think God does when God... If God were walking along and a Leviathan jumps out, you think God jumps? You think He backs up? You think He goes, oh. No. I mean, that Leviathan doesn't breathe without God's allowing that to happen, just like you and just like me. His authority, that I just want you to try to get your head around the immensity of His authority. So what they do is they do exactly what they were created to do, nothing more and nothing less. You know what they do? They eat what God created them to eat. They don't choose what to eat. They live where God deemed that they would live. They, their, their life cycle is predicated on what God deemed that it would be. They reproduce at a rate that God deemed they would reproduce. Everything about them is according to the parameters of the Maker. And all of creation exists under this authority that it does only as God allows it to do. God set the parameters of the oceans and everything in them and of the land and everything upon it. And all of creation, all of it, all of our everything, all of our weather patterns, you name it, it's all, it can only do according to what God has allowed for it to do. It can only exist in that way. It can't morph into something else. It can't it doesn't have the free will to become something that it wasn't intended to be originally. It can only be that. You see, we are unique in creation. But understand, God's authority is still God's authority. And because He, in love, has granted us a little sliver of authority in free will, it hasn't limited His authority. See, Him sharing authority doesn't limit His. You understand that? So, you know, as you move up the food chain, I guess you could say that as you come up the food chain, each you know, step up the rung of the ladder, these different animals in creation maybe have seem to have a, a higher degree of authority. But do they? It's just perceived, isn't it? They don't have a higher degree of authority. 
They can only do what they're allowed to do. They can only do what they were made to do. That's all they can do. So the message of all of creation that God wants Job to see is that He's sovereign. Which just simply means that God can do anything He wants to do, anytime He wants to do, any way He wants to do it. Anything. Anyway, anytime. So as we sit here and we think about this, we have to realize that we don't take a breath without God allowing that to happen. Our very existence, God's allowing that to be. All of heaven, all of earth, it's all owned by God. It's His possession. He owns it. He's in authority over it. And so anything we're allowed to do within it is by His decree. And if it weren't, then it would never happen. It's not like, think about creation that can't step out of bounds and then go, uh uh-oh, and then get punished to be brought back. It can never step out of bounds in the first place. You got that? So that... You know, we have a hard time thinking about that because that's not the way we exist. But when you think about all of creation, you realize it can only exist that way. And so, if God's sovereign, then no purpose that He has can be stopped. It can't be... It, it's not... There's no purpose that God has that's at the mercy of anything else, including you and me. It can't be stopped. Which is a comforting reality. It should be if you if you know God. It should, I think, is, is the most uh, useful thing to temper our, our fears and our concern, especially when we look around and see a world that's so chaotic. You should feel great confidence in the fact that it can appear experientially your heart is very good at telling you the world is spinning out of control. But is it? And here's here's my question for you. Can it? Can the world spin out of control? It cannot. It's not allowed. Just let that sink in as you sit in front of the television. Remember, it can never spin out of control. Never. Ever. There's always someone in control. And it's always the same someone. It's always been and it always will be. Regardless of how it may appear regardless of how we may experience it and regardless of the messages that our heart is telling us. So in Job 42, then Job now responds. And so this is, a, this is a, an illustration of what... This is a repentant heart. This is 
a repentant theology, a repentant understanding. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I think we should all own those words tonight. And I mean really own them. Because what comes to the forefront of this whole thing is what God's really after. And the way you know what God is after, you see, if you want to know what God is after, how do you figure that out? Not in your own life. I'm talking about like when you're reading Scripture or when you're observing someone else's life from the outside. The way you find out what God is after is by what God gets. He doesn't fail. So, I don't need God to tell me what He's after in Job's life because I can read it. God is exposing the one thing in Job's heart that needs to be exposed, which is pride. His pride. Here's the most faithful, righteous man on the face of the earth, but he's got a, he's got a root of pride in his heart. And his experiences have magnified these things and he said some things he shouldn't say and so now his response this is how you know what God's after is the humility that comes out of Job and he realizes you can do all things and your purposes cannot be thwarted you know I've said some things I shouldn't have said I've talked about things I don't understand I stepped off into an area I shouldn't have stepped off into Now, have you ever been in this situation? Have you ever been in that moment when you were so sure of something or so confident of something or so committed to something and then in an instant you realized that you had gone totally and completely wrong. I could think of so many illustrations in my life when there's that moment and I realized, uh-oh, and there's, there's no way to stop the avalanche of humility. But it's painful when it's coming and but you can't stop it I was reading in one of the Job commentaries about uh, uh, a physician and his wife and they were a Christian couple they loved the Lord they had three boys and their oldest boy 
was uh, very gifted. He was extraordinarily gifted in school and also musically. He, he uh, developed a propensity to play the violin and was just, you know, incredible at it. And so uh, in his later years in high school, and typical, I think, for uh, an eldest child, especially an eldest son, you know, he began to, you know, develop some grandiose ideas about himself, and he started to get a little bit, you know, cocky because he was, you know, things came easy to him. And, you know, his parents saw that there were some issues with his character, but they overlooked him because he was so gifted at so many things, which is a downfall of many parents. You know, you, you're, if you have a child that's gifted at something, then the, the, so many parents will overlook uh, things that should not be overlooked, but because of this other thing. And so they did the same thing, and he, you know, just uh, developed a real uh, rebellious spirit and a rebellious heart. But he finished high school uh, and had exemplary grades and got a full scholarship to this incredible uh, university out on the West Coast because of his musical ability. And so his parents sent him off to school. His father paid the full tuition. You know, they were a family of great means. And after his freshman year, he came back. And of course, his two younger brothers are still living at home. They're still in high school. And, you know, about a month into the summer, they realized that, you know, he was completely out of control, that he had aligned himself with the wrong crowd in his uh, first year away at school, that he had all sorts of, uh, you know, he just said he had a bad attitude. He, was, he started berating his mom and dad and treating his little, his younger brothers, uh, you know, and it, it just was horrible. And the family was just sort of spiraling down because it had this poisonous person. And so his father came to the end of his rope, and so he calls the son into his study one day, and he points to a leather chair and has the son sit down, and the son plops down, and the dad says, uh, son, I need to tell you something. I need to explain some things to you. That everything that you have belongs to me. Everything that's upstairs in your room, I bought. It belongs to me. The car in the driveway belongs to me. The money in your pocket belongs to me. The clothes on your back belong to me. Everything in the world that you possess belongs to me and you have chosen to come into my home and to treat your family disrespectfully and to conduct yourself in a way that you know is objectionable to the way that we run our family and so out of mercy I'm going to allow you to keep the clothes on your back I want you to empty out your pockets on the table and I want you to get out of my house. And I want you to know that at any point that you feel like you can live 
in a way in which your mom and dad would have you to live, have taught you to live, you're more than welcome to come back and we will embrace you and we will love you. But until such time, you're not welcome in this home. So the boy reached in his pocket, pulled out the money that he had, his car keys, whatever it was, emptied out all of his pockets. His dad walked him to the front door, opened the door. The boy walked out. He walked three blocks. And then he stopped. Now imagine what he's thinking in those three blocks. You know, the first block, he's probably mad. And he's huffing and he's puffing because, well, how can my dad treat me this way? And how can my. And he's, no doubt, like the disciples in the boat, attacking the character of his good, loving father. And then about the second block, he starts thinking about what now? And when he gets to the third block, that's when the reality of the situation starts to set in. What am I going to go? Where, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? I don't have anything. I don't own anything. I don't have anything. If it wasn't for my dad, I couldn't even live. And he turns around and he walks back and he walks up to the front door of his house that he grew up in. And he knocks on the door and the door opens and his mom and dad are standing there and he looks at his parents and he says, I'm sorry. I was wrong. You see, that's repentance. He walked three blocks that way, then he turned around and he had to walk back the same three blocks, come back to the place that he left, and he had to change. He had to right the wrong. You see, there was, there was when you read Psalm 51, after David's sin with Bathsheba and the disaster that followed in that. David comes to the realization that what God requires is a contrite heart. It's a heart of repentance. And you know what a heart of repentance never does? A heart of repentance never comes back with a deal. With a negotiation. With the, if I do this, you'll do this. See, that's not repentance. There's no, there's no explanation. There's no... It's just, I was wrong. I'm sorry. That's repentance. All of this negotiating, blame-shifting, Trying to... It's not repentance in you and it's not repentance in the people that God's called you to love and shepherd. It's not repentance. 
See, that's what God does to Job. He jerks the rug out from under. He gives him a picture of who he is so that Job can then see what life would be like apart from God. See, the path to true enlightenment is not found by looking in a mirror, but by looking to the heavens. What? Here's a... Here's the opposite message of what you're going to hear in our culture. Do you see, do you see what led, led Job to this brilliant realization, this life-changing, life-altering crossroads with God? Had nothing to do with self-examination. It had nothing to do with Job watching Dr. Phil and then spending all day looking at himself in the mirror and evaluating himself and his brokenness and his past and all the people that had wounded him and all of his excuses and blah, 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 blah. That's not what happened. It's not, listen, true enlightenment doesn't, you're never going to find that in the mirror. That's a lie. All of the, listen, your, your past and my past, they're all real. And our past, it, it tells a story. But it doesn't define or determine our future. And if you're still shackled to things that are in the past, that's a, that's a problem that needs to be addressed between you and God. Because the Bible says that there's freedom. There's freedom in the presence of God. There's freedom in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why are we so quiet? There's freedom. You should be happy about that. So, so be careful. I'm not saying that there's no value in looking in the mirror. I'm saying that true enlightenment will never come from the mirror. Never. It comes from looking to the heavens. It comes from seeking first the kingdom of God. It comes from turning, fixing your eyes on what's above, not on what's in front of you. Here's the principle. The principle is self-enlightenment comes through God-enlightenment. You see, the way that you and I discover the realities about life and purpose and ourselves is by discovering the realities about God. I love to uh, I, I love to 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 talk about and talk with other people, you know, about uh, you know who we are and how we become the people that we are and all the things that have molded us and shaped us and you know there's nothing more wonderful than to listen to someone tell the story of how God has used all the, the the situations and circumstances and how he's spun so many things around for good in our lives to make us who we are to position us in certain ways to do all sorts of things it's wonderful and I think self-awareness is such a beautiful and wonderful thing 
But the only way that I've ever been able to grow in my self-awareness is to grow in my God-awareness. If you want to know who really understands themselves and life and how the world works, it's people who walk deeply with God. It's exactly the same sort of scenario that I talked about Sunday morning from the book of James. That wisdom, people who really have godly wisdom are people who are not fixated on this world. They're looking to another world. You see, the, the, the more you gain insight and wisdom, the more you realize that the world that we live in, if it's anything, it's more than anything else out of touch with reality. That is the essence of the world that we live in. And what is reality? It's not what we see with our human eyes. It's the spiritual reality of where we live and who we are and who God is. So Job's sort of swan song of repentance, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God has a a purpose and it's unfolding and nothing can hinder it. And so there 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 are sections of that purpose that have already been completed in in all of our lives. But there's also a a grand purpose that's still in process because we're breathing, we're alive, right? And so what we want to do is we want to understand, we want to be able to understand what God was doing. Like you can look back in your own life and the lives of people around you and understand what God is doing by what God has accomplished. Because you know what He always accomplishes? Exactly what He set out to accomplish. He doesn't fail. And so that should encourage you and in some ways maybe frighten you tonight. Because you're still in this process and God's still... So He's doing something in you right now. And we just have a tendency to believe that this myth that we're somehow we're in control of that. Like that God can only do in your life and my life what we allow Him to do. How laughable is that? He's got a plan and we're this is the message 
Job received. This is the message I want you to receive. He's got a plan, and it's we're incapable of understanding that plan. You're not going to come to some moment. You think Job, at, at this moment in Job 42, 5 and 6, you think that's Job's moment of, of total clarity? No, that's just his moment of clarity. He probably has more questions in this moment than he did when we began the journey. They're just different questions. He knows God in a deeper, more intimate way than he's ever known Him before, and yet he's only scratched the surface. He's only touched the hem of his garment. You think the, the woman with the issue of blood who pushed her way through the crowd and she touches the hem of his garment and is instantly healed? Does she walk away from that moment with less questions or more? But why do we tend to believe that somehow there's a we put a box around that and go, check, you know, like that's completed. Like that lady, she met Jesus. Boom, everything's done. And no. That's just a moment along the path that God did something supernatural in her life that is that that opened himself up to her in a whole new and wonderful way but only created more questions and more desires and more... Do you think she went away from that moment with some sense of completion? So to think that would to think that there was less zeal and fire to get close to God? No way. It was more than ever. It's the same thing with Job. It's the same thing with you and the same thing with me. It's why I all I feel I always you know I'm, I feel like this revolving you know canister where I sit in my study and I feel I feel the I feel it building up within me and then I put it all out to you and then it starts over again and it just goes oh and and every time it's it's not like oh that's you know, done. It's always. I just scratched the surface of it. Like I could come back to it ten thousand times, and ten thousand times it would be fresh and new. Job comes to the realization that the one that he's come in contact with is is unrivaled. He's unchallengeable. He's you have to make up words to, to describe his, his majesty and his worthiness. See, he's a God who loves Job so much that he allows... Satan to bring suffering into his life according to the parameters that God sets out because everything always can only exist in the parameters so that Job could come to this moment. And in this moment, 
His circumstances have not yet changed. And what follows tonight to the end of the book is this avalanche of grace and blessing that gets poured out on Job's life like a, like a tidal wave. But not until God's purpose has been completed. Just like you and just like me. So when we encounter God, not as we imagine Him, but as He is, we realize it's all about God, not us. So if you go back and you read all these middle chapters of Job, what you find is that Job is very aware of himself, his sufferings, his injustices, his, his discomfort, his until the purpose of God is completed in him. And then the only thing he says about himself is, I despise myself in the presence of you. See, God doesn't expose Job's pride to crush him or to punish him or to... What we're going to see next week is He exposes his pride so that He can bless him. That's exactly what He does in your life and my life. He roots out the things that He knows it's going to cause us all of this. He's rooting all of that out to bless us. And the blessing of Job is not in the things he receives from God. It's in the enlightenment he receives about God. That's the primary glorious blessing. May that be true in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Job. And we thank you for the wisdom that you've laid before.